I was reading an article yesterday, and I I don't remember who the leader was, but uh, some, uh, he's I guess the new president of a small country, I don't remember the name of the country off the top of my head, but it was rather interesting because he uh, offered to resign if anybody could prove the existence of God, and the reason he did that was because he had made some comments earlier about how stupid God was, and he kind of went on this tirade about how stupid it is to believe in God, and um, so now he's put out this charge that if anybody can prove that God exists, he'll resign, and he knows he knows nothing will happen of it, but it makes me think when we, when we sing something like this, how amazing God is, and then the ignorance of the world, and this poor soul, if I can refer to him that way, that just is ignorant and doesn't realize truly how amazing God is. He doesn't have a relationship with him. You know, he can't see it. So here we are to be able to sing because of the relationship we have with him on how the Philippines, there we go. What's his What's his name? Do you remember? Rodrigo Duterte. I did that just to trip him up. <laughs> no, um, yeah, so the president of the Philippines. But uh, the arrogance and the pride. Um, yeah, we know who God really is. We do know that he's truly amazing. Go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 25. We've been now uh, learning about David, God's king, a man after his own heart who would be a better king than Saul. And we've seen David's amazing commitment to honoring God by doing right. If we didn't already know the famous story of David's stumbling and his failure, his sin with Bathsheba, that comes up actually in 2 Samuel, we might actually begin to think that David never sinned. Because the picture we've had of David so far is this amazing, godly, courageous individual. Today, however, we're going to see that David was not immune to sin. We're going to see a um, a little oops here, if you will. It's not by far the worst thing David has done. Uh, Again, we look into what he did with Bathsheba later on in um, the second book, um, where David had committed not only adultery, but murder. Um, So this certainly is not the worst thing David has done. But we're going to see some interesting um, things today. Because the text really isn't as much about David as it is about God's work in David's life to restrain him from sin. And I think there's a direct correlation to us because that's the way God works in our life as well. Um, God actually works to restrain us from sin and he does it through a variety of means. So I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. In chapter 25, we're introduced to this couple, two different individuals, a husband and a wife, who couldn't actually be more different. We're going to start off in verse 25, the first few verses here. We see in verse 1 that Samuel actually had died. But if you jump down to verse 2, there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. So what we find here is we look at the first 11 verses or so, we're going to see that this man Nabal actually commits an offense against David. And so we'll touch on that, and then we'll see how David responds to that, and what God then has to do to intervene. But we're introduced to this couple here. The, the man's name here is Nabal. And we see that he was a very rich man. It says that he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, which was pretty good. His name actually, though, is kind of our first clue into what's going on here. His name means foolish or senseless. And it's likely that the author was trying to drive this point home because he, repeat, he repeats Nabal's name 16 times in this passage. It's almost as if we don't really know who he is, right? No, the author, by repeating his name over and over and over, if you were Hebrew, what you would hear is foolish, foolish, senseless, ignorant, he's a fool, the guy doesn't have a clue. You would hear that over and over because the author repeats his name 16 times. And we know that to understand the scriptures, if we pay attention to what's repeated, it gives us a clue. And so what we're supposed to take from this is, this man was a fool. We also learn that he was harsh. It says that he was harsh and evil in his doings. How many of you remember It's a Wonderful Life? 
one of my favorite black and white movies. Do you know who Mr. Potter was? Who was Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life? Anybody remember? He was the richest man in town. He was a banker. And you remember what his character was like? This guy was nasty. You know, he's foreclosing on everybody's properties, and he just reveled in being nasty. Well, he was a fool, ultimately. And that's kind of who I picture here with Nabal, this rich man who had everything he needed, and yet he was harsh and evil in his doings, just like Mr. Potter was. There was no compassion. You remember what happened with George when... um, the money from his savings and loan had disappeared because of his, was it his brother-in-law? Um, who had, uncle, his uncle who had lost the money when he went to the bank to deposit it, and so it all fell on George's shoulders. And so George goes to Potter asking for help, and Potter just revels in George's downfall. And that's kind of the way, the picture we get here with Nabal. In fact, a little bit later in the text, verse 17, you don't have to jump there now, but one of his own servants describes him as a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So we're introduced to Nabal here, the man who had ultimately committed offense against David. He was a fool, he was harsh, he was evil in his doings. He was a worthless man who nobody could talk to. He couldn't talk sense to him. Now his wife Abigail could not have been more different. We're told here in the text that she was totally the opposite of him. If you look at what it says in verse 3, second half, it says that she was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. Now, a more literal rendering of that would be that she was good of understanding. The Hebrew word applies the ability to use reason, to understand a situation and sort of reason through it. Kimberly and I were talking the other morning as we spent some time together about the difference between wisdom and knowledge. And wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. It's what you do with your knowledge. It's the ability to reason through things and think sincerely about them and to understand and to put them into practice. That's, that's wisdom. And what we learn here from her is that she was able to do that. In fact, one of my favorite um, lexicons for the Old Testament is something called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. It sort of, it doesn't just define a word. It gives you the nuances of a word. And this is what it says about the words that are used of her. It refers to the process of thinking through a complex arrangement of thoughts resulting in a wise dealing and a use of good, practical common sense. Now, I know that's kind of deep and, and long, but basically what, what this word means is that it, re, it refers to being able to reason through something that's rather complex. In other words, when you face a difficult circumstance, to be able to look at it, to evaluate it, Know exactly how to respond and how to work through that and then do so by applying good, common, practical sense to get through it. And we're going to see that with her in a minute. And so what the author has done is he has set this this picture up for us of Nabal, the wicked man, the foolish man, and his bright, intelligent wife. Now, we're not going to... Before I even got it out of my mouth, I hear Dustin... Start to respond. So we don't need, we know, we know where we might go with that. What's that? Did I hear somebody? We know how great the intelligence is. That's exactly where I was going to go, was that, come on guys, we know. We won't tease that too much, but the reality of it is here, they couldn't have been more different, right? Two strikingly different individuals, and that just sets the table for us here. What happens next? Look at verses 4 through 8. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have we missed any, or nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find in hand to your servants and to your son David. So, what do we have here? David actually sends men to Nabal because they have need. Remember, David is out traveling. He's on the run. He has nothing. He has no food, no way to make a living, no way to provide for his needs and the needs of what are somewhere between 400 and 600 men. And so they're out in the wilderness. 
They hear about Nabal, so they go to Nabal and they ask him, basically, can you spare anything? Now, the time is important here because it's a festival. A time with, with plenty, they're celebrating. Um, so David goes and simply says, hey, if you have anything that you can spare for my men. Nabal's shepherds are in the region and David and his men had provided protection for them and that's key to this as well. Notice David said, says, your shepherds were with us in 7a. He says that they had not insulted them. That's likely a reference to not disgracing them. It says, also in verse 7, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Basically what was happening here was David's men were out in the wilderness and they were protecting Nabal's shepherds. Now, being a shepherd at that time was not a safe task. You were out alone. You weren't often able to defend yourselves. And so what had happened was David's men had offered to protect Nabal's shepherds. Now, he didn't go to Nabal and ask or say, we'll do it. They just did it. David and the men are out in the wilderness. They see the shepherds. The shepherds are relying on them for support and for help and for protection. And so David did exactly that, provided them protection. Again, this wasn't a contract. It wasn't something that David went and worked out a deal with Nabal. He just did it, because that's the character of David. The shepherds needed support and help. David's men were out there, so they did exactly that. They protected him. And so David then thinks, rightly so, that he should be able to go to Nabal and ask for help when he needed it. A little bit later down in verses 15 and 16, if you read it, listen to what one of the servants said about David. He says, Yet the men, David's men, were very good to us. And we were not insulted, meaning we weren't disgraced, which is oftentimes what would happen. Nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. So even... Nabal's servants, when they went to Abigail, and we'll see that in a minute here, said, David's men protected us. They were a wall to us. They didn't disgrace us. They were kind to us. They were gentle to us. So David has every right now to go to Nabal and to say, hey, can you spare anything? Can you return the good that we've offered to you? Because had David and his men not done that, Nabal would have likely suffered some form of loss because that was fairly common. Again, the shepherds out all by themselves, I was watching a, I've been watching a show on television called Cooper's Treasure, which is basically Cooper was an astronaut, and he was also a treasure hunter, ocean treasure hunter. And um, on some of his trips around the planet in a spaceship, he was able to map what he saw were anomalies in the ocean, of things where he thought maybe shipwrecks were. Well, he passed those papers along to another individual who he sort of treated as a son, and that individual now is going out, and one of the things he's located was one of Columbus's ships that had sunk. And he's now looking for some other treasure and, and um, other things with that. And as, you, as I sort of think through and kind of look at, at how that stuff works out, they are out in the ocean. And because they're out way out in the ocean, they don't have much protection. And so they're kind of left undefended. And so on this episode the other day, Amy and I were watching it. They saw another boat kind of off in the distance kind of watching them. And they talked about how dangerous it is to be out in the ocean sort of by themselves because they're totally unprotected. Well, that's kind of like these shepherds. They're way out in the wilderness. They're unprotected. And they're shepherds. They're not military people. And oftentimes what would happen is enemies, like the Amalekites and others, would then ransack them, come and attack them, and take stuff. So Nabal is out there, or his men are out there. They're sort of unprotected. And David's there saying, oh, they could use some help. And so he takes it upon himself to protect them. So he has every right to go to them. So David asked Nabal to provide a little something for his men to help meet their needs. He says in verse 8, Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. In other words, he says, Hey, whatever you have left over. Whatever you have left over, give it to us. Nabal responds, however, with basically disrespect and contempt. He doesn't just say, Nah, I got nothing that can give you. Look at the way he responds in verses 9 through 11. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat 
that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? One of the things that we kind of have to understand here is that in the ancient Near East, which is that whole region that surrounds Israel, certain things were expected when you met strangers. There was a certain protocol. There was a, a certain decorum that you would, would use. And Nabal here, if you were to understand those customs and what was expected and necessary, basically does almost everything contrary to that. Did you see how David's men approached Nabal? David had him go with these gracious words, peace be upon you and upon your family. The men bowed down to him. There was, there's these certain protocols that they followed when they met this man Nabal to offer him respect and kindness and grace. David wasn't just trying to butter up Nabal. If I'm just nice enough to the guy and say enough really nice things, maybe he'll give me what I want. That was just expected behavior even among the pagans. But what Nabal does is he basically puffs himself up with pride and he says, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? He knew who David was because he makes some comments in the text that indicates he knew exactly who David was. So he wasn't saying, who's David? I don't know who he is. He's basically disparaging him. Who is this little son of Jesse dude? What should I care about him? He knew full well who David was. This was an insult to him. He says, who is David that I should care about him? Well, gee, the men had just told him why he should care about David. David had just protected his shepherds, protected his wealth, his livelihood. He continues to insult David by referring to him as nothing but a runaway slave. Did you catch that? He says, there are many servants today who are breaking away from their master. That was a derogatory statement of basically calling David a runaway slave. Go back to your master, Saul. What are you doing out here? Finally, he simply refused to repay David and his men for their kindness and service. Look at the emphasis that he places on himself. I tried to emphasize it as I read it to you, but listen again. Verse 11. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to the men whose origin I do not know? How many personal pronouns can you use in one sentence to refer to yourself? This man is arrogant, he's proud, he's wicked. This man would have nothing at this point, or at least would have his income slightly reduced if David hadn't done what he had done, and yet he's saying, this is all mine, 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 mine. You have no right to it. Why should I give anything that belongs to me to help you out? Well, we know the answer to that. Well, because you wouldn't have all of that if David's men wouldn't have been out there protecting your shepherds. Well, this is where we find David now starting to struggle a little bit. Because David responds to Nabal's mistreatment, to the disrespect, with a plan to avenge himself. It's not a good thing. Look at verses 12 and 13. So David's young men retracted their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. So David's intent here was to utterly destroy Nabal's household. Think about it. He takes 400 men to go wipe out one dude and his family. I mean, he was going to clean house. He wasn't going to take any chances. He tells each one to put on their sword. David puts on his sword. They prepare for battle. In fact, the word sword is mentioned three times in these two verses, which gives us an indication of what David's plan was. What do you use a sword for? If you look down at verses 21 and 22, look at what David says down there. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he was returned evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more so if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. So David, because of the disrespect and the mistreatment, 
decides this man's family. Every male in his family deserves to die. So he takes 400 men, they all put on their military gear, and they start heading out to literally slaughter Nabal's family. You think David's a little bit upset here? Think he's a little bit ticked? Appears that way. Now I'm going to say something here, but you'll see where I'm going with it in a second. I think David's anger and frustration here, not his actions, but his anger and his frustration here, I think is justified. Now, just because anger and frustration is justified doesn't mean that actions are. So we'll deal with David's actions in a second, but I want you to think about something. I've already mentioned that hospitality was the social norm in the ancient Near East. Many countries outside of Israel had laws allowing travelers, much like David here, to literally go into the fields, private fields, and eat. There were laws to protect travelers and people like David. And these are the pagans. It was common to bow to others when you met them. Um, you showed them kind, kindness and respect. Water was also typically given to strangers. At, at a minimum, Nabal should offer David's men water, and he didn't. That was considered a, a great, great offense to not do that. In some areas, it was considered an insult if you literally did not beg a traveler to stay with you. In other words, somebody like David would show up on Nabal's front porch, and Nabal should have offered him what he needed, and then when David's men said, thank you very much, we have enough now, we're leaving, he should have begged him literally to stay another day. Does that sound familiar to anything? Do you remember a story from the Old Testament where somebody went and involves getting a wife? you remember the story? And every time he tried to leave, the father begged him to stay a little longer and begged him to stay a little longer and begged him to stay a little longer. It's not just because he didn't want David to leave with his daughter. It's because that was the custom, even outside of Israel. We see many of these things actually reflected in Genesis 18 when... In fact, why don't you go ahead and turn there just briefly here. Genesis 18. It's with Abraham. Genesis 18. I'm just going to read through this here. Verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and he looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to greet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Now at this point, Abraham didn't know that, this, that one of these three individuals was probably the pre-incarnate Christ. He just saw them as individuals. And so he runs out, he bows to them because that was the custom. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. In other words, let me serve you. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd, and he took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. Now you could read the rest of the story on your own there, but we have the example here of Abraham following the custom of the area which was to be gracious and to kind, to literally seek out to serve those who had shown up on your doorstep. And what we find here with Nabal is total opposite. And so David, being familiar with the custom, had every right to be offended, had every right to be frustrated. But not only that, David had gone above and beyond in protecting these men. And to be treated this way, certainly we could understand why David was frustrated and upset and offended. We can understand why he was angry to be treated that way. You know, it's much like if if we were to go into a restaurant and we walk up, we walk in the door and they look at us and we're expecting them to say, hey, welcome to Fridays. And you walk in the door and they go, what the heck do you want? What are you doing here? Um, I don't know, we're 
traveling back to Green Bay. We'd like to get some food. Is this a halfway point? You know, we go somewhere else. We got nothing here for you. I got a credit card. I get some food. <laughs> what along with you? Leave. Would you be offended by that? Would you be a little bit upset? Some of us might just say, well, I don't go somewhere else where they, you know. Others may say, uh-uh, I'm going to get me some food. You're going to, you know what I mean, and puff up ourselves with some pride and we're going to make... Well, we have any number of reactions to that, but it's pretty clear here that when people treat us the way Nabal treated David, we get frustrated, we get angry. Maybe we want to get a little bit of vengeance. And that's exactly what David did. David wanted vengeance. Now, thankfully, after David straps on the weaponry and starts to march out and decides that he is not just going to um, go and abuse Nabal for a little bit, he's going to wipe out everything related to Nabal, fortunately, the Lord restrains him from his sin. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 25. Now, One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were good to us, and they were not, they, uh, we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything, as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, and all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore, Know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that nobody can even speak to him. So we find here that Nabal's servant seeks Abigail's help. Now why do you suppose he went to Abigail? He knew that Abigail was the reasonable one. She's already been described as somebody who was reasonable, was wise. He says, Nabal was a worthless man. You can't even talk to him. So he actually pleads with her and says, no, and consider what you need to do because evil is plotted against our master and against his household, which likely you know, would have included Abigail. Now, there's no indication that David wanted to kill anybody other than the men, but the servants probably didn't know that. All they knew is David was coming. He was going to wipe out the family. And so the servant goes to the reasonable one, Abigail, and she actually then sets out to prevent the tragedy. Look at verses 20 or 18 and following. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on the donkey. She apparently made a trip to Kroger. This is a huge amount of food, but she knows David's coming with 400 men. And this is about what it would have taken to feed them. So she and her young men, or she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down to the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David or now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has regarded me evil for good or returned evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more so also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. And so we meet Abigail. She throws together this huge meal. She does something that Nabal should have done, and she's wise enough to know that. And she sets out to meet David. What's interesting is the author, how he sort of sticks in the thoughts of David here, and I think it's his purpose to let us know that David obviously was steeping at this point. How often does that happen with us? You know, we get offended if somebody does something, and it bothers us initially, but a little bit later we're now still steeping on it, and it gets a little bit worse. You know, in the initial introduction to David, we find him simply saying, hey, put on your swords, guys, we're going. Now we find David saying, by golly, I'm not going to let a single one of them live. So help me, God, if if any one of them is still living in the morning. And so David is steeping, probably getting angrier as he goes along. You ever find that with yourselves? The more you think on something, the more agitated you get, the more you want vengeance or to do something to maybe hurt the people that have offended us. But look at what happens. Verse 23. 
When Abigail saw, saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey. And notice what she does. She fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. The custom that was expected. Greeting David. This man's coming to kill her whole family. And she bows down to meet him. And again, it's part of the custom. It's a way, that, way to show grace. It's a way to show kindness. She fell at his feet and she said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. In other words, David, he's a fool. Don't, don't listen to him. Don't be offended by a fool. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see your young men of the Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself on my own hand or by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. What basically she does here is she does what Nabal should have done. She goes out, she meets David's needs and the needs of his men, brings him food. She treats him with respect, with honor, and according to the customs of the area. But you notice she does some other things. She takes the blame for Nabal's actions. You notice, remember David did that when Saul went and wiped out the priests of Nob? It wasn't David's fault. But yet David says, you know what, put it on me. And that's what she does here. Put my husband's stupidity and his foolishness on me. On me alone, my Lord, be the blame, and please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. She said, I, I didn't see you coming. Had I seen you coming, David, it would have been different. Which means she likely would have intervened. And she's seen David's men approach Nabal and saw how Nabal was behaving. She probably would have said, you know what? Nabal, I'll, I'll take care of this. She's the wise one. This isn't going to end well if Nabal does this. She would have intervened would have gone on and taken care of David's needs because she was wise. And then she says, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Sounds an awful lot like David, a man after God's own heart. She was gracious, she was kind. She said, hey, let this be on me. Your mistreatment, put it on, put it on me. Just ignore the, the fool. So she extended proper hospitality to David and his men, just like Nabal should have done. Now it's interesting because, remember, this included 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep that she had already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, 200 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. This was a massive haul. She went to some work to meet David's needs. There are three things I want to pull out as we look at the rest of her words here. Because she says three things to David that I think are, are critical. The first one is this. She suggests that the Lord himself had sent her to David to keep him from sinning. In other words, she sees a bigger picture here than just meeting David's needs and being hospitable to him. She recognizes that the Lord has raised her up to intervene to prevent David from committing sin. Look at what she says in verse 26. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood, and from avenging yourself on your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. She saw herself as a tool. She realized that this would be grave sin on David's part, had he been permitted to continue to do what he had planned in his heart. Dave or Steve Schmeckel will remember Dave Johnson and his wife Tamara. Dave Johnson was the um, Campus Crusade for Christ director um, at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire where I got saved. Steve also attended there. I remember talking to Dave one time. Tamara was a fairly, um, I'll say strong-willed wife, um, very outspoken, um, but also very gracious and kind. And Dave was one of these guys who was always just going. I think, you know, it's almost like he was on speed all the time, <laughs> you know. And so he would always like to make decisions and always in control. I mean, he was a director of Campus Crusade for Christ on two campuses. And I remember one time he was telling this story about how they were trying to make some decisions on something and he and his wife could not agree. And so um, 
we had asked him. We were at a part of a men's Bible study, a small group of guys. And so one of, one of the guys said, well, how do you, how do you deal with that? Because we're trying to juggle the whole idea of husband being head and, and, and wife being helper, and yet they're equal partners, and it's not really about servanthood. And the whole, how do we, how do we balance all that? And he said, well, let me give you a great example. And he shared this story about how he and his wife were butting heads on a particular issue. And they just couldn't agree. He said, so finally... Tamara looked at me and said, okay, honey, um, I realize that um, ultimately you're the head of the household and the head of the family. So you need to ultimately make this decision. And we don't agree. You have your decision. I would like to make a different decision. And we're clashing here. We're not going to resolve this. So my job as your wife is to step aside, allow you to make the decision Because God is ultimately going to hold you responsible for that decision. So, I am absolved. If it is the wrong decision, if it is a bad decision, it's all on you. And my role is to simply remind you to be wise in this decision and to make the right decision as your wife. So, I'm willing to do that. Wow, okay. So, what did you do, Dave? He said, so I stopped and I really thought about it And I ended up doing what my wife suggested we do. And she was right. And so he said, so how often does this happen in your household, Dave? And Dave said, probably at least half the time. Tamara was a fantastic wife. Because she understood her role with her husband. It wasn't to just simply sit down, shut up, whatever you want to do, you're, you're you're the dude. You're the head. She realized that God would use her in her husband's life to speak sense and reason into his heart and mind. And she took that very seriously. And that's really kind of the picture we get here with Abigail, where she goes out to David and she realizes, somebody's got to speak some sense into David. And she does that. And I find it intriguing that she was described as a reasonable, wise, David wasn't being that at this point. And so God took somebody that had that capacity, that reason, ability to, to see things and to understand the consequences. And so she goes to David and she basically reminds him, God sent me to you because you're heading towards sin. And I'm his messenger to prevent you from doing that. She actually says a second thing. She reminds David that the Lord is the one who's responsible ultimately for fighting his battles. Look at verses 28 and 29. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and will not be found, or an evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Notice what she says. My Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. She reminded David that ultimately it's the Lord who fights his battles and that David is supposed to be a servant of the Lord to fight his battles. David had forgotten that because what's he doing? He's going out on vengeance all on his own. This is all about David, nothing about the Lord. We didn't see David say, you know, you've blasphemed the Lord's anointed. So I'm now coming out. No. David's basically upset because he got offended. So this is all about... Sounds an awful lot like Saul, doesn't it? David's acting more like Saul here than David. Did you catch what she did there? The imagery she used? What was the imagery she used there? Remember the sling? David had killed Goliath with a sling. It was a supernatural event. One small kid with one shiny stone in a sling... Running at full speed takes down a giant who's twice his size, covered from head to toe in armor, gets hit in the one spot that he could get hit to kill him. It was a supernatural thing. And David even started off that whole event by saying, the Lord's going to do this. Abigail reminds him of that with this clever imagery of the sling. She knew about David's use of the sling with taking out Goliath. And basically now she says, your enemies will be slung out with a hollow of a sling. What she's really doing there, and it's, 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 you have to see the poetry of it here. 
She's taken David back to that point of saying, David, the Lord will take care of your battles. You don't have to. Just like he did with Goliath, he'll take care of those that offend you. He'll take care of those that, that, that do what Nabal did to you. You don't have to do that because you are supposed to be fighting the Lord's battles, not your own. Third thing she says to him is she suggests that David focus on fighting the Lord's battles. So she not only reminds him what he's supposed to be doing, but she now sort of commands him in some respects, fight the Lord's battles. Look at what she does in verse 28 again. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Reminds him that evil should not be found in all of David's ways. But she does something else. Look at verses 30 and 31. When the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and he appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. What did she do there? She basically says, David... Don't do something you're going to regret. Someday you're going to be king. And you'll be thinking back about the innocent blood you shed. This would have been murder, folks. The law says that that demands death. And so she says, don't do something that's going to come back and haunt you, David. Think about the future. Think about when you become king. Do you want the regrets of having this on your conscience? How many of us have ever been in a place like that? Where we've done something only later on to go, man, I, w- I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't have that black mark. I wish I didn't have my conscience pricking me because I did that. So she reminds David of that. She says, David, focus on fighting the Lord's battles, not your own, because if you do this and you avenge yourself, it's going to come back and haunt your conscience later. And it would have. There's no question about that. So how does David actually respond to this? This is, I think, where our life lesson will come in today. How does David respond to this? Well, fortunately, Abigail's words have an impact on David because he turns back from his sin. Look at verses 32 through 35. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to me this day. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Man, what a gracious response by David. Have you ever been in a situation where you confront somebody about their sin and their response is a direct opposite of David? (laughs) How dare you judge me? How dare you call me out? How dare you do that? Or they seem less than sincere, thanks, whatever. Look at David's response here. There are four things here that he does. He not only recognizes the hand of God in restraining him, but he actually rejoices over it. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to this day to meet me. David, as he looked at Abigail, who literally was coming to him and saying, David, don't commit this sin. And David goes, wow, God sent you to keep me from sinning. And he rejoiced because of it. He didn't just say, well, okay, I won't do it. He was happy about it. He was thrilled that God had done it for him. The second thing we see here is that he not only recognized the wisdom and discernment of Abigail, but he blessed her for her wisdom. Look at what he says in verse 33. Blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from not avenging myself by my own hand. Think about this. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't been confronted by somebody. Maybe there's been something you were considering doing or behaving in a certain way and you had somebody confront you about it, talk to you about it. Think for a second, what was, your, what was going on inside you? Were you happy they were there? Did you appreciate their wisdom? David here is looking at Abigail thinking, wow, this woman, she's smart, she's intelligent, she's wise. 
And then he blesses her for it. In other words, thanks her for it. Thanks for coming to me. Thanks for calling me out. Had you not done that, man, look at where this may have gone, Abigail. I would have shed innocent blood. I would have wiped out Nabal's family. Thanks for coming to me. So he rejoices over it. He blesses her for it. Third thing is, he recognizes that without her intervention, he would have committed a grave sin. He recognizes, I wouldn't have stopped myself. I would have gone ahead and done it. In other words, I didn't have it within me to come to my senses and just stop. Verse 34, he says this, Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light, even one man. So David in his humility now recognizes, had God not sent her, this would have ended up in a horrible place. Have you ever found yourself in a position like that where, man, did somebody not talk with you? Somebody that pulled me aside, maybe I wouldn't have come to my senses. I tell you, there's been enough times in my life where I've had people pull me aside, mention things to me, speak some sense to me. Sometimes it was because I was contemplating sin. Sometimes it was just because I was being stupid. But we have to recognize at times like that that that's the way God works. And God was working that way with Abigail. The last thing I think David, David uh, saw here was he appreciated what was done and he sent her away in peace. Verse 35, it says, So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I've listened to you and granted your request. So he sends her away in peace. It breaks my heart when I see somebody that's struggling and somebody confronts them, and they finally sort of come to their senses and relent, but it ends up hurting that relationship, that instead of sending them away in peace, they send them away just, I'm done. We're not supposed to do that. When a brother or sister in Christ comes to us and confronts us about something, and they're right, and we get upset about it, and it destroys the relationship, that doesn't honor God. David instead looks at Abigail and sends her away in peace. So what we're supposed to do? Um, I think I've shared this story before. Um, at a young guy in seminary that I was ministering with, we had started a singles ministry, and um, he got involved with a relationship he shouldn't have been involved with. And I can guarantee that his church and his pastor would have yanked his funding for seminary. The seminary would have kicked him out because it violated the seminary rules. Um... So I pulled him aside. He was a guy that I'd been ministering with, and I said, "Look, man, you, this is not right. You've got to." And he was—he displayed an arrogance and a pride that I had never seen in him before. And it's because he desperately wanted this relationship, and so it changed the way he thought. It justified his behavior. And so I remember I had to make a decision: How, what do I do with this? So I decided that the best thing for me to do is to, in some respects, put the thumbscrews to him, to go to him and say, "Okay." Um, I'm going to spell out the consequences for you, and you'll have to make a decision. And so I told him, I said, here's the thing. Because you're refusing to listen to me, because you're refusing to listen to some of the others that we're ministering with, I'm going to have to talk to your pastor and talk to the school. Because if that's what it's going to take for you to come to your senses, then I'm willing to do that because I don't want to see you throw your life away. Well, he wasn't happy. He was quite upset. got frustrated and angry. He showed up on my doorstep about a week later, literally in tears, and he said, okay, you're right. I shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. I've ended the relationship. Um, but you know what? I don't ever want to see you again. I don't want to ever talk to you again. And he left. Didn't send me away in peace. It broke my heart. What's interesting, though, is he dropped out of seminary, um, but he ended up sending me an invitation to his wedding about a year later to another lovely young lady. So I went to the wedding. He pulled me aside at the wedding. He said, hey, I want you to know something. Because remember back at seminary, the talk we had at the gym, the pressure you kind of put on me. I said, yeah. And he's like, man, I hated you for that. He goes, but thank God somebody said something. Because he pointed over at his new bride and he said, because I wouldn't be marrying her today 
had somebody not talked with me? And he apologized for that time on the doorstep where he basically said, I don't want to ever see you again. He said, I should have thanked you for it. I don't say that to puff myself up with pride because I've had people that have had to do that to me too. But the reality of it is, when a brother or sister confronts us, we ought to be appreciative. Send them away in peace. Now granted, it doesn't mean every time somebody confronts us, when they don't do it in the right way, or they confront us and it's not actually right, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to be appreciative with that. But we do need to be gracious and kind. Like I said, in this case, David knew that he was in the wrong, and Abigail was in the right. And sometimes, when that happens, we can still be prideful, we can be a little hurt, we can be a little embarrassed, and we allow it to infect that relationship. And what David does, he sends Abigail away in peace. Now here's what's really interesting about this. David actually went back and married Abigail. David went back and married her because Nabal here dies. I suspect the reason David did was because he respected Abigail and who she was and her character and her wisdom. So this is the woman that basically had to call him out. And yet he respected it enough and went back and married her. We'll end on this. Verses 36 through 38 says this. Then Abigail came to Nabal and behold he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So so she did not tell him anything until the morning light. She waited until he sobered up a little bit. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, and his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Basically, it sounds like he had a stroke. So God actually took care of David's enemy. David wiped, or David, or God wiped out Nabal because of his arrogance and his pride and the disrespect that he offered. Which is just a fulfillment of Abigail's prophecy. The Lord will fight your battles. You don't have to, David. So what a great reminder to David that the God, God would take care of it. He didn't have to. So what are some things that we can do with this? I've laid out most of them in the text, but ultimately what we have in this text is a couple of things. One of them is that I think God is active and helping to restrain our sin. We're told that we have the Holy Spirit, and one of the rules of the Holy Spirit is to call out sin. So one of the ways God does that is He puts the Holy Spirit in us to help prevent us from sin. Okay, Speaks in our, in our heart, if you will. But the other thing we see here is that oftentimes God has to use other people. That Galatians 6, I'll let you read that on your own, says that we're expected to do that. We're expected to approach others. When we see them caught in sin, just like Abigail did, and what we find here is a perfect way to, to, to walk through that. Look at the way Abigail approaches David. Graciousness and kindness and gentleness and wisdom. But then look at the way David responds. And rejoicing over it, being thankful over it, appreciating it, and sending Abigail away in peace. It gives us a great model.